Welcome to the Development Policy Centre. In this podcast, you'll hear Dr. Eric Kwa discuss the agenda and approach being taken by PNG's new government in relation to strengthening government systems and processes. Amongst other topics, Dr. Kwa will discuss the design of the proposed PNG Independent Commission Against Corruption, or ICAC. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Okay, everybody, thank you very much for, for coming. Um, first of all, to introduce this, this sec- session, I'd like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Thank you very much uh, for, for coming out to what uh, will no doubt be a very interesting lecture um, by Dr. Eric Kwa. Uh, Eric's going to be talking today uh, about some of the um, recent um, reforms that have been put forward by the PNG government and as an exclusive, uh, Eric uh, assures me this is the first time this has been spoken about outside of PNG, he'll be reflecting on uh, the legislation on the the ICAC and further decentralisation reforms. So um, well worth coming uh, along to um, on this, this glorious day. Now, Dr. Eric Kwa is the Secretary or CEO for the Papua New Guinea Constitutional Law Reform Commission and one of the country's preeminent legal thinkers. He's a lawyer by profession and uh, he has many years of experience in practice and research. Dr. Kwa holds a PhD um, in environmental law from Auckland University. Uh, He also holds a Master's of Law with Honours from the University of Wollongong and a law degree with honours from the University of of Papua New Guinea. And uh, Eric is certainly no stranger to to university life. He was uh, the Professor and Law Dean of the University of of, uh, Papua New Guinea Law School previously. He's also made a number of trips out to the Australian National University, speaking on numerous occasions um, about uh, um, his, his work uh, the Development Policy Centre has had him out uh, at least twice before, and uh, he's spoken at, uh, at other places around the university as well. So we're very lucky to, to have him out. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of things that I, sh- I should mention, um, a couple of things that are, that are hot off the press, uh, which uh, Eric has uh, um, graciously let me um, know about. Um, the f- uh, there's a couple of, of publications that are only available, again, another exclusive, uh, for those that turn up and aren't listening on the podcast. Um, there are a couple of um, publications. One is on decentralisation for an integrated, strong and prosperous Papua New Guinea. This is an edited volume um, that came out last year and is only available in, in hard copy. So if you're interested in getting a copy, Eric uh, has very graciously said that he, he can send these out um, from PNG in hard copy. Um, and the other document uh, that uh, we expect uh, will be soon uh, publicly available is the final report on the inquiry into the organic law and provincial governments and local level governments, which is a review that was that, that took place and was published a couple of years ago. And um, and again, that uh, that should be available on, on hard copy for those who are interested. Um, so without any further ado, uh, it's my great pleasure to, to, to welcome Dr. Eric Wah. Uh, thank you, Grant, and um, thank you to the Development uh, Policy Centre and the Crawford School for inviting me to come and share with you some of my thoughts and uh, some of the things that are happening in PNG. Um, 
I hear and read a lot of commentaries about PNG from um, observers in Australia and elsewhere. And so I thought that um, I could come and share with you what re really is happening within the system. Because a lot of the things that um, are happening um, my office, which is the Constitutional Law Commission, is actively engaged in those agendas. And so I thought it would be a good time for me to share it with you and also for those of you who are commenting on PNG, or those who have interest in PNG, you can ask me questions and I can actually share with you uh, some of those things. Not only as a, a public relations thing for um, Papua New Guinea and us here, but also to hopefully give courage and confidence to a lot of our, uh, our observers that not all is lost in PNG, that things are happening that um, we hope will eventually um, replace those negative commentaries and bring about some change. So I'm here to talk about change, change that we hope will be for the better of Papua New Guinea. So as you can see from the topic um, that I'll be speaking on, I'll be talking about the strategy of government systems and processes and PNG in PNG. And I'd like to start off with the discussion on ICAC, because uh, I know that a couple of uh, months ago, uh, one of my colleagues came in and also spoke on corruption. And I thought we'll present to you the government's position on, on this particular institution that is being set up to tackle corruption. I'll also discuss with you a number of other interventions that are being made by the government. Um, there are a number of things that are happening because um, the government has just been formed. We have a lot of uh, controversies about the national elections and there are a lot of uh, differing views in terms of those who are in government and those who are in opposition. And then of course, you know, a couple of months ago, Pango moved. And so there's a lot of uncertainty and anxiety amongst a lot of people. And I thought I might just share with you uh, what we're doing as a, a whole, whole of government in addressing a number of those concerns that have been raised. So I'll be sharing with you this afternoon um, discussions on ICAC, also on the integrity of political parties and candidates. We'll also talk about the proposed Human Rights Commission and also talk about the proposed decentralization um, proposals that we have, which we want to now push forward uh, into next year. And then hopefully, uh, those of you, as I said, if you've got interest and you want to ask some questions, we can deal with those questions um, uh, later on. Okay, why, why have I chosen to speak to you on this topic? Basically because um, I run the only mandated uh, law reform agency in PNG. My agency is responsible for reforming all the laws in PNG. We are mandated to place a hand in all the reforms that are happening. We're also being mandated to reform the constitution. So any constitutional proposals for reform must come to my office. And so that's why I thought uh, it would be good to share with you some of those proposals that are now before us, some of the proposals that we've been working on, that you can be able to see uh, how far we have gone in terms of trying to reform the system. I also thought I might speak to you this, this afternoon because I am head of department. I sit at the department of that level where we meet and we discuss the agendas of government. And so it would be a good time for you to ask me questions and I can answer you directly because I know what's happening inside. It's important that we share these things with you uh, because Australia is our closest friend and a, and a friend and a partner. And so 
I'm here to share those details with you um, so that, as I said, we can build a relationship and begin to generate some confidence in the system uh, that we have. And so um, let me begin the discussions on corruption, huh? because that's what everybody probably knows about Papua New Guinea. We sit at the 136 with uh, four other different countries on the uh, Transparency International uh, Corruption Index. And so we, in terms of corruption, seem to be really, really bad. Um, um, that, that's what people say. And um, when I hear people talking about corruption in PNG and they accuse the government, um, I must admit that as a senior public officer, uh, I get insulted. Uh, because uh, I try my best not to be a part of the corrupt system, and I try to do my best to fight it, but then when the description is on the whole, then of course uh, I'm part of the whole. And, and so um, for me it's quite uh, disappointing, but of course the evidence is there. We know that. And so we're not denying the evidence, but I'm just saying that as part of the system, as someone there with a couple of other people who are trying to improve the system, maybe our light is not uh, strong enough in the darkness that you might see in PNG. And so um, it's been a difficult um, challenge for Papua New Guinea. We have tried to deal with uh, corruption since 2002. That was the first time that the government decided that, yes, we will handle the situation ahead on. Of course, uh, the government made a decision and then in 2007 we signed off on the United Nations um, Corruption Treaty. We signed off in 2007, <coughs> nothing happened and in 2009 uh, the government of Somare, Michael Somare decided that yes, let's develop a strategy and let's be serious about it and come up with a policy. Now that took two years and then of course when Peter Ondel became a Prime Minister in 2011, he actually endorsed and approved the National Strategy on Corruption. So that was approved in 2011. And then in 2014, the parliament amended the constitution section 222, and they established the independent commission against corruption. It was easily passed by parliament, agreed. That particular provision is now in effect. It's law. So public really already has provisions on ICAC. The only holdup is basically the supporting law, which we call the organic law. That particular organic law basically sets out the operational matters. But the institution is, an organization has already been set up by section 222. We've been trying to get the organic law through. In 2015, it went to the first reading and then for some reason, it went and uh, sat at the Parliamentary Committee on Laws. And they just sat on it until election 2017 this year. Uh, I tried to ask around and find out why they couldn't move the um, amendments to the second reading and the third reading in Parliament. Uh, I haven't got an answer. I am thinking that maybe because of the different crises that we had, uh, particularly with the students, with the votes of no confidence, I think it just basically distracted that committee from dealing with this particular uh, organic law. And so it just lapsed. So what is happening now? Of course, uh, you know very well that Papua New Guinea is currently in a very deep uh, financial crisis. 
uh, those who are economists know that very well, and I know that very well because I deal with money every day, because I've got to sign off checks for my, my, my workers in the office. I look after 41 um, government public servants, and I have to sign off every fortnight on their salary. And so I have to draw down uh, money from finance, and the rest of the government departments, they fight over the little money that is available, because we are fighting for cash. Um, that becomes available. And so over the last couple of months, we have been basically distracted by the issue of money. Um, and so I was thinking, well, when the government comes in, August 4, this year, government was formed, that will be their prime focus, and so they would not really bother with a lot of the other structural reforms that we would like to propose. But I'm pleased to tell you that, uh, of course, when the government was formed in uh, August, they also were looking for some legislative proposals that they would like to promote uh, in these first 100 days. And so we were approached to provide a list. And so I'm happy to tell you that we provided a list. And first on the list is ICAC. Uh, we asked the government if they could deal with it as their priority this year. And um, the government agreed. They agreed to look at ICAC. They also agreed to look at the amendments to the organic law on the integrity of political parties and candidates, OLIPAC. Um, they said, yes, we'll look at it. And then they also agreed to look at the Human Rights Commission. So I'm, I'm pretty happy that um, they didn't lose sight of those structural reforms. They've agreed to um, support those proposals. And so what we have not done so far in terms of ICAC is that um, because of uh, the parliamentary democracy that we have adopted from Australia and elsewhere, you know, every life of a parliament ends, comes in an election. And so ICAC was there in 2015, as I said, it's now lapsed because this is a new parliament. And so we needed to re-initiate the process. So just a couple of weeks ago, um, at the departmental level, we have agreed that we will now take this ICAC bill that went through to uh, parliament in 2015 we will reintroduce it. And so that's now going through the approval processes. Uh, we hope that um, by February, the first sitting of uh, 2018, they can take a vote on ICAC. Because the Prime Minister has come out publicly a couple of weeks ago that he wants to deal with ICAC as one of the priority uh, constitutional amendments um, for this government. Now, what about ICAC? First, we have looked at the examples of ICAC around the, around the world, and we focused more on Hong Kong and New South Wales, and trying to look at uh, the similarities, and look at some of the strengths and weaknesses, and devise our own. So we have developed that. Um, the key element of the, or the function or the purpose of the ICAC will basically be to prevent and prosecute Offenders, huh? Who are the offenders? The draft organic law talks about one group of people, and that group of people is public officials. So ICAC is focused on public officials, and it defines who those public officials are, and that's all the way down to the janitor. If you are involved in stealing, if you're involved in corrupt deals, you'll still be caught. So long as you're working in a government agency, you are a public servant. So you are caught uh, with that definition. The other element of it is corrupt conduct. What is corrupt conduct? 
Now that is very broad, the organic law defines it very broadly. The commission will comprise of three commissioners. For the first time since independence, the government has now agreed to take the approach that we took at independence. At independence, the government realized that we were lacking competency. And so it allowed a lot of non-citizens to take on public offices for a period of five years. And then Papua New Guineans took over those positions. Only in this case in ICAC, we are allowed to employ foreigners as commissioners to ICAC. The reason being um, proposed by the government at the moment is because Papua New Guineans are interconnected, they might not effectively uh, deal with the corrupt conduct investigation. So we might also bring in somebody from Hatay. There is no connection probably to the misdemeanors. Huh? And so that's the only law that I've not come across that has now allowed foreigners to hold public office. What they're also going to do is that there's going to be an oversight body. So you have the commissioners, and then you have an oversight body that looks at the work of the commission. Um, okay, we might have criticisms about this because you know they're supposed to be independent. Let them do their job. Why do you want to have another oversight body to look at what ICAC is doing? The example is from the Ombudsman Commission. The leaders argue that uh, who looks after the Ombudsman Commission? Because um, they refer leaders. So who refers them? And so because of that argument, they say, well, let's get a oversight body uh, comprising of people from the public, people from the private sector, sitting on it and just looking at the work of the ICAC. Now, of course, the appointments is being done by appointments committee, which is headed by the prime minister. And so some people have argued, well, the prime minister might appoint his own friend to be the uh, chairman of the um, ICAC. Well, um, all around the world, the leadership appoints those kinds of leaders. Um, the government he appoints the department heads. Um, Donald Trump appoints his own secretaries. Um, so that's something that in a democratic system we have given that mandate to those who hold authority, those who are in power, because we give our powers to those people and we expect them to make decisions for the best interest of the society. So we're not looking at uh, individuals at the moment. We're looking at the system. And so the system is that the leadership, the prime minister of the day, appoints with an independent committee those kind of leaders. And so just because some people might not like Peter O'Neill doesn't mean that we have to change uh, the law because people don't like Peter O'Neill. It's not about Peter O'Neill. It's about the system. And so that's what is going to happen. Uh, a appointment committee made up of uh, different uh, leaders sitting on that committee to appoint the commissioners. Now, it will be almost similar to New South Wales and as I said, Hong Kong. There have been a number of criticisms about the ICAC and I just thought I might just pick up three and just discuss it with you and if you have any ideas, you can share it with us. I have um, sought permission from the government and they've allowed me to give you the e-copy of the ICAC. So it's now with uh, Development Policy Center. They can email it to you, Ashley. They can send it to you, have it. And if you have any comments, send it to us. Um, we'll put it up on the website. Yes, so it's going to be on the website. 
please uh, access it. If you have any commentaries, send it to us. We're still talking. Uh, we have until like January next year. So give us your views. First criticism is about the issue of arrest. Because under the ICAG, the commission cannot arrest uh, people immediately. That is because of the fact that uh, the Papua New Guinea Constitution has given a constitutional mandate to the police to arrest uh, individuals. The public can arrest a person if they are singing or her in committing a crime immediately. That's public and arrest. But if there is a complaint and an investigation, it's the police who can arrest. And so that's why um, the police have come to us and said, we don't want you to give our powers to somebody else. Okay, ICA can arrest, but with us. They must work with us to arrest um, the alleged offenders. The second point that has been raised against the ICAC is the power to prosecute. Again, um, it's not like maybe New South Wales or Hong Kong where ICAC can proceed with a prosecution. In Papua New Guinea, that power is given to the public prosecutor by the Constitution. Now, in Papua New Guinea, the Constitution is a supreme law, and therefore we cannot uh, remove the power and give it to somebody else. So the public prosecutor has has challenged us that if we give the power to the ICAC, he will challenge it in court. And the Supreme Court has already now clarified that the arrest power and the prosecution power remains with those two different offices. And that's why we are suggesting that maybe there should be some timelines. So for example, if the public prosecutor doesn't prosecute, then in a certain time period, then the ICAC can go ahead and prosecute. The public prosecutor has also agreed that if they do right to him, he can delegate that power of prosecution to them. To ICAC. So there is a mechanism in place to share that, share that function. The major, the major controversy is the question of unexplained wealth. How do you explain this guy's 500,000 in his account all of a sudden? Um, let me tell you my own um, view on this. I'd like us to explain our unexplained wealth, we must do it. Because uh, that's been responsible government, that's been responsible uh, leader. We must do it. Unfortunately, we must understand the Papuni, we are very, very strong in culture. And so the argument is that people give and take and they exchange all the time, paying bright price. There's transmission of maybe 50,000 to this guy to pay bright price to his son, a son's wife. Uh, there's a burial. This guy with transmitting 10,000 to support you. I think those arguments are not valid. I think the valid argument should be this. The Ombudsman Commission already, already has the power to investigate unexplained wealth. Because every year, and I've just received my letter, we have to submit our annual returns. In our annual returns, we're also supposed to submit a financial return. And in a financial return, I, I will share with you my own, I have to explain every transaction that appears on my bank statement. And I have to explain to the commission that this money came from this. This money went out for this in my financial statement. And when I submit to the Muslim Commission, the Muslim Commission is supposed to review those reports and then see. Hey, you got this 100,000, but the explanation is not sufficient. And then they call you up. 
And you must explain to them. And if you cannot explain, then they refer you. They will then prosecute you. For the public servants down the line, down the rank, if it's from proceeds of a crime, there's already the Proceeds of Crimes Act. So anybody can report you that we saw this guy transacting so much money. We just saw a check going through. I was talking to the internal auditors last week, uh, two weeks ago, at their conference, and I was saying, internal auditors, your job is to report any transactions that are questionable, are suspicious. And they all said, yeah, doctor, thank you. You can tell us to do our job, but we are afraid that they will sack us because it's the leader who is approving those transactions. And if we report him, then we get set, we get suspended. So then the question of the whistleblower legislation, uh, something that I raised earlier on uh, this year, we actually proceeded to work on developing a whistleblower legislation for PNG, but then we have now agreed that the provisions in ICAC does provide very strong protection for whistleblowers. So it's already there in the organic law. We don't need to create another separate legislation. And we have looked at the provisions and we are fairly satisfied with it. And so we're hoping that um, in terms of unexplained world, apart from the cultural reasoning, I think the law uh, with the Procedure Crime Act and with now the whistleblower within the Holy Pact and the Procedure Crime Act together would provide those framework to at least prevent or deter um, people accumulating un unexplained wealth. So that's in terms of ICAC. As I said, the Prime Minister has now committed himself, the government has committed, they want to get this ICAC bill, the organic law, to Parliament in February. We're working against time and I'm hoping that we can be able to get it through um, by the end of this month so we can gazette it, because in the constitutional processes, we need to gazette it one month before they take a vote. So we're hoping that December and January we could gazette it and then wait for public comments. And that's why I'm also encouraging you to give your comments because by the time we gazette it, anybody in the world can give us their comments and we can then take it to the parliamentary committee. So that's on ICAC. So let me just stop there and then I'll just give you a rundown on the other topics and then maybe allow time for questions then I can be able to answer um, your questions. In terms of the other areas, one of the key concerns that we have is the governance structures, the system. Now, we are working with almost 32, 32 government departments and agencies in revising their laws. We are very mindful about the issue of corruption. We are very mindful about good governance. And as we are working with these agencies in reforming their laws, those are the key principles that we are trying to implement, implant in those reforms. And we hope that we can get it through. Let me just give you an example. In 2016, the parliament finally passed the amendment to the Public Finance Management Act. Those of you who deal with finances, you will know that in Papua New Guinea, we have two different government departments operating under one law. So the Public Finance Management Act basically covers the Department of Finance and the Department of Treasury. And so in terms of the powers and functions, there's always conflicts. Because we don't know where the Treasury Department comes and ends and where finance begins. It took us almost 18 months to do the review and with the support of the um, World Bank, we got the proposals through in 2016. So that particular law has now been amended and we are now able to 
clearly see what treasury has to do and what finance has to do, and we can track. We can track now the money that's been disbursed. Where is it sitting? We're also now looking at companies owned by provincial governments. They must give an acquittal. We must know what's happening, because that's where the, leaking, the leakage happens, because it's way beyond reach. And so they're able to use the money in whatever way they want. With this amendment, we track everybody down. All the statutory authorities as well, all the state-owned companies, they now come under the same law. So we can be able to track all their transactions. So basically in terms of monitoring, we have now strengthened the process and hopefully that will now continue to work through the system. I can assure you that uh, we got the instructions uh, earlier this year and the finance secretary said, I'm coming down, I'm looking at all the trust accounts and I'm gonna shut them down. You could explain why those monies are sitting in the trust accounts. And that's because of that amendment. Because, because of that amendment, we now have given the power, more powers to the finance secretary to track all those funds because departments hide funds in trust accounts. With the, with the recurrent accounts, we can tell because we give quarterly reports. But with the trust account, we don't know because the money continues to remain there for the next couple of months, years, and we, we can lose track of that. So that's something that we have now tried to uh, clarify in the Public Service Management Act, Public Finances Management Act that we did in 2016. Now, in terms of the only pack uh, on the integrated public parties, I'm happy to inform you that the government has now agreed that they will work with Dr. Alphonse Gelu and take the OLIPAC through with the ICAC. That's a two priority um, constitutional reforms that the government has now accepted. So we have just uh, completed our discussions with Dr. Gelu and his team. The proposals now with the state solicitors for clearance to go to cabinet. And then we hope that it will be gazetted after the approval and get it uh, for the first reading in February. The third one is the decentralization uh, reform work that we did. The Constitutional Reform Commission and the Department of Constitutional Government Office, we were given 18 months to complete a review of the decentralization system. We did that and we submitted our report to government and our grant was just showing you the volume one. We've got a volume two that contains the names, places, discussions that people shared with us in the 18 provinces that we visited. The names of every person is also recorded there. So for those who are interested in PhD on devolution, that's something for you. Um, several recommendations from the Organic Law Review. First, remove LLGs. Too many layers of government. There are three levels. The third level is basically difunctional, doesn't work, just get rid of it. Then how do you deal with the precedents? We're now sitting on DDAs. We're suggesting that we go back to 1977, where we had provincial MPs to the provincial assembly. The precedents basically represent those constituencies. And so we can still retain the position of presidents, but no presidents anymore, but we'll be provincial assembly members. We want to also create a provincial assembly where there is an opposition and there is an office of the speaker separate from the governor so that there is meaningful debate in the provincial assemblies. We're also suggesting that, suggesting that in the provincial assemblies we will have a rep from the women and youth and the disabled. 
we will have them in the provincial assemblies. Basically, being more inclusive um, at the political level. We also, in the proposals, we have clarified the roles of the district government authorities, the provincial governments, and now the three city commissions. That's Lay City Commission, Mount Aven City Commission, and Kokopo City Commission. Because they seem to be at loggerheads with the district development authorities because it's the same constituency. So we have now clarified their roles and their boundaries. So hopefully that will now ease the tensions. But the idea is that we want to have a very small provincial government, which will be only playing a facilitative role and move all the public servants down to the districts. So you get inspectors who are inspecting primary schools, inspecting teachers at the district and not in the province, then they hardly go. You can have a health advisor right down at the district who can advise on health services. You know, it's almost like the previous life under the colonial system, just after independence, that's what happened. All of a sudden, it's all gone. So we are trying to basically uh, reinstate some of those systems that worked, but maybe improve it a little bit better. The other thing that we are suggesting under the um, organic law proposals on decentralization is, can we resolve the issue of ownership of natural resources? Can we resolve it? And then look at the production cost and the benefit sharing. Do it more properly so that the landowners don't disrupt mining sites, logging sites, mineral sites, LNG sites, because they are very frustrated individuals, group of people who have no real access to those funds that have been promised to them. So we are hoping that we can be able to clarify that as well uh, with the uh, decentralization system that we're proposing. <coughs> so that's something that we've done. Maybe the final one that I, I need to share with you and then I can see it is, um, then I hear your questions, is the Human Rights Commission. The Human Rights Commission was basically on the agenda. Um, early in 2002, but then for some reason it um, never, Italite. The UNDP and other international organizations did provide a lot of funding to the government to establish a Human Rights Commission. Uh, nothing happened. With this new government, the proposal from CLRC, please, reinitiate, open the consultations, open the discussions, and lots will be engaged so we can be able to set up this commission that has been outstanding for almost 30 years. And the government has agreed. And so we are currently now uh, developing some programs for next year on how, to, how, to, how we can be able to create a legislation that will establish the Human Rights Commission. So we're really excited about it. And we hope that we can get it through. I know that, um, as I said earlier on, many of our people in PNG and maybe elsewhere have said that this government is corrupt. They cannot do anything much. But I am here to tell you that we are trying to do something. I'm not here to support Prime Minister. I'm not here to support the ministers. I am telling you what I'm actively involved in, what we are doing as a system. So the final law that I need to tell you and I can stop is 
the elections. 2017, it's been a very controversial election for Papua New Guinea. Um, a lot of commentators about different aspects of the elections. I also did my bit. Um, well, the government has acknowledged that there are major flaws within the electoral system. So, two weeks ago, the Prime Minister directed my office to work with the electoral commissioner, his department, and the Department of Control Affairs to now put together a plan to start the review of the electoral law starting next year. We had two meetings already. The last one was last Thursday, trying to set the terms of reference for the review. I'm hoping that before the end of this month, or even early next month, we can be able to take a submission to government and the government can approve, from, give the formal approval for us to review the election law. And I hope that um, once we do that, we can then be able to open it up to commentaries, suggestions from any one of you here in Australia, the ANU, elsewhere, we will be happy to receive any proposals to improve the system. Um, from where I stand, we want to be open, we want to be transparent in the process, so we welcome any commentaries from anyone, any organization that will help us to improve our systems. So generally, as you look at it, even though it's like one law, two law, three law, four laws, but they're actually interventions trying to help to fix the system of governance. So that will now, hopefully, as a whole, will tackle the elephant in the room, corruption. So we cannot tackle it head on, but we can do different interventions that will then tackle the big animal that is in the room that we can be able to overcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Okay, thank you, uh, Eric. That was, that was great. Um, so a very wide-ranging conversation there. And um, uh, I will say also, before I open it up for, for questions, that um, at the Global Policy Centre, uh, there are a number of different issues, some of which um, Eric has um, uh, um, touched on in, in his very wide-ranging um, talk that we did, that are also discussed on the blog, so we encourage you, if you've got some ideas um, for, for blog posts, please send them in. Um, but uh, now to hand it over to the audience, do we have a roving mic, or do people just speak in a, a loud and, and clear voice? Loud and clear voice. Um, questions? Thank you for your comments. Um, my first question was about the ICAC only being able to investigate uh, public sector corruption. Does that include uh, private sector interactions with the public sector? And can ICAC then go after private sector organisations that are bribing uh, or, you know, unseen corrupt conduct with the public uh, sector? And also, are there any immunities for commissioners? So just recently, Indonesia has had a number of commissioners sort of uh, criminalised or charges placed against them um, for going after particularly high-level uh, corrupt officials. Are there any protections for uh, commissioners or other uh, investigators so that they uh, aren't taken down in the course of these investigations? Uh, thank you. Um The first one again, sorry, prosecution, is it? Uh, private sector. Oh, yeah, private sector, yeah. Well, the, um, 
the thinking is that we target the public officials because they're the ones who enter into contracts. They're the ones who negotiate. They're the ones who liaise with the private sector. Uh, we cannot actually get at the private sector, but we can get at the uh, public servant. And so that's the thinking. Um, I would like to go and get the guys in the private sector, but um, there's, already, there's already provisions in our criminal code that provides for bribing of public officials. So that's part of the uh, legal regime that we are also uh, incorporating into the ICAC regime, that um, those criminal offenses will be prosecuted by ICAC. So that's already covered by another law. So ICAC doesn't need to repeat uh, that provision. As I said, the target is public servants. We have to stop them from getting into corrupt deals. In terms of the second one, I think that's part of the reason why they have an oversight committee. This oversight committee made up of NGOs, civil society reps, they are watching the ICAC. And if anything goes wrong, then these are the people that will not be able to defend uh, the commissioners. But the idea is that they, the scheme of things is almost like the Ombudsman Commission. So the commissioners themselves must also report each other. So if, if a commissioner is being bribed, the other two commissioners must report it. Uh, for the investigators, they fall under the whistleblower provisions. That when they're investigating, they're protected um, in terms of their jobs. Um, we already have enough experience uh, with the Ombudsman Commission where the commissioners have reported each other and one or two of their members have been dismissed because of their own personal involvement in certain corrupt activities. So we're hoping that ICAC will also do the same, the three commissioners. But in terms of their protection, we hope that uh, the Oversight Committee can be able to provide that balance. Um, yeah, um, what you said about the appointment of foreign commissioners to the ICAC, I mean, it's not really such a novelty when one considers that foreigners have been judiciary ever since independence and also occasionally appointed to uh, commissions of inquiry, but that raises the question about how is the establishment of this body going to relate to the commissions of inquiry established under the commissions of inquiry act, which is presumably still in place, and to the work of the Ombudsman Commission. You've now got three different kinds of entity with commissioners. So what, how, they, how do they relate to each other? I mean, which things get dealt with by which body? That's one thing. The other thing had to do with getting rid of local government councils, which um, might be a good idea at one level, but um, what happens to the sort of political organisation of sort of village-level society where the councillor and the committees have traditionally basically been the glue that holds village society together in a political sense? They just disappear with no replacement. Let's deal with, uh, Colin, the first, uh, last question. Um, Local level governments, we're suggesting that, I forgot to mention that in the current reforms, we are creating space for autonomy. So provincial governments that perform at a higher level and they can show that they have the capability, they will be granted autonomy. Once they granted autonomy, they will have autonomous financial powers, administrative powers, and lawmaking powers. In that context, we're then suggesting that they can then establish their own local level governments because they will not have their own capacity. Um, the government as a national agency cannot afford the 320 LLGs and almost 6,000 uh, world councillors because they're on payroll. And you're trying to cut off the public service, cut down the downsized public service. Well, you need to start somewhere. 
But that's not because we need to get rid of LNGs because of the size of the public service. It's just that they've been just inefficient. They, they have not performed at all. We're also suggesting that under the new, um, new demarcation of powers between the provincial government districts and the city commissions, that district development authority can set up monitoring committees, basically to monitor developments in the communities. And that's where the local communities, the wards that we now have, they can still have a voice. Uh, but basically to see that the funds that were allocated to this contractor or to this particular work, it's done. Because most times we disperse the funds, nobody monitors, and then after five years time, the member is gone and they want to investigate, all the records are lost. So we are hoping that at the community level, they will have monitoring committees who continue to monitor what happens in the community. If the medicines are running low, somebody has to report it. If the bridge is broken, somebody has to report it. And that's what we are hoping that the DDAs will set it up. And this will be just an administrative agency, not supposed to be a paid job. We hope we can get volunteers sitting on those committees because that's the whole reason why we're getting rid of them. We don't have the money to fund it. But yes, they will be established if you have an autonomy, autonomous government. In terms of the division of powers and functions between these three different um, institutions, Ombudsman Commission, the success thing is that they deal with leaders, 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 leaders. Any conduct of leaders. ICAC, two terms. Corrupt conduct and public official. So it's very narrow and for a specific purpose. For commissions of inquiry, usually they are infrequent. Um, they happen when there is maybe a large sum of money that's just gone missing. We cannot track it. Then they set up those kinds of commissions. It's not something that happens all the time. Whereas ICAC would be permanent and Ombudsman Commission, as we know, has been there forever. Of course, in terms of the foreign appointments, the reason is that the commissioners will now be appointed for six years. Judges are appointed for only three years, and they must be renewed every three years. So foreign judges, only three years. In this case, they are six years, and they are constitutional office holders. Of course, Ombudsman Commission also holds it for six years. A clerk of parliament holds it for six years. Electoral Commissioner holds it for six years. And so that's why the idea was not to get non-citizens on those consul offices, officer offices, but because of the nature of the um, matter that is before us, it's corruption, they thought we might get foreigners to sit on the commission. Sorry, if I could just ask you to continue on with that just a little bit. Um, you know, with the six-year commissioners, um, just looking at the New South Wales experience with ICAP, where you know, a change was then brought in and then the, the commission structure and the commissioners changed. Um, is there anything in the law that you're looking at that would prevent that from happening? Are the six-year terms um, you know, complete? I mean, is there an impeachment process where they serve the pleasure of the prime minister and, and all that sort of good stuff? And, and also, just um, what's your personal view on would you prefer to have all commissioners be foreign, have one be a PNG and citizen? Or, or just what are your thoughts about how that would, your ideal uh, makeup? Well, I, I, I don't agree with foreigners sitting on the ICAC. Because I think we have enough experience. Papua New Guinea is now 42 years, going 43. And it's a job of the government to find those good people. 
um, to manage the affairs. There's no need for a foreigner to come and sit on this commission to deal with corruption. Because some of the issues with corruption goes to do with culture. And Papua New Guineans know how to deal with culture because they are cultural beings. And they will be able to maybe see how they can be able to deal with those issues. But more importantly, um, in my view, we have matured enough to get Papua New Guinea to sit on this. There is no need for other people to come in and sit on this commission. But that's the government's view, and uh, I'm a public servant willing to support the government view. In terms of the commissioners, they can only have two terms, so 12 years. So first six years, then if you do well, get reappointed for another term, and that's it. It's finished. You go away. And they get a new people. Um, their first term is over, they advertise. If advertise, if you reapply, if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you're gone. Somebody else will replace you. So that scrutiny is always there. Because it runs over five years, six years. See, the Prime Minister that appoints the commissioners now might not be in the next term of parliament. So it will be somebody else who will be appointing the next lot. And so it, it, it doesn't really be in the same period as the current government. It actually bridges over to the other side. Uh, that's the way it was designed. Even in the election, the election of the local commissioner, six years. The head of state, six years. The Ombudsman Commission, six years, because the current government appoints them and then bridging it into the following year. And then they get replaced or they get renewed by a new government. So that's a scheme of things. But You mentioned about landowners becoming frustrated, and I was wondering what the context of that is and what the aim is, and if what you were saying, the problem was that they didn't understand the processes, so you want the communication with them to be clearer or something like that. The suggestion is that... Um at the moment, under the scheme of things, uh, when an investor invests money for developing a mine, they're actually investing and they're exploring. The scheme of things is as soon as they find gold, for some reason or the other, they become owners of the, of the gold. So now the government and the landowners have to pay into it or buy into it. So you own the gold, but then now you have to buy into the development of the gold mine. It's illogical. And so the suggestion is that can we clarify that a little bit more and then look at the benefit stream? What is more beneficial to the landowners? One thinking is that let's get off the idea of royalties. Some of you know about royalties. Well, can they become owners and they participate in the profit <laughs> instead of being owners, being landowners, but they receive tiny bits from their own natural resource? So it's really a, a big shift that we're talking about here, a sitting of minds in terms of ownership, development, and sharing of resources, the benefits. Uh, we are more concerned about the benefits because they sell the final product and they get the benefits and they don't share it with the landowners. We're suggesting that they must sell. 
They must serve you the promise of God. They must serve the next of God. Uh, at the moment, some of the political leaders are thinking that we should not even buy into the equity. That's our goal. You develop it, and then we, we share the profits. I think it happens in other parts of the world as well. In New Caledonia, it's 51, uh, 49. Straight away. You don't need to buy it into it. The landowners and the government own 51%. The foreign company owns 49%. So there are enough examples elsewhere for us to rethink uh, this issue in PNG. Well, I can uh, First up, just one comment. I think to support your view on the, the employment of the foreign commissioners, I think it is a, it's a sad thing just listening to you and seeing that our political leaders are undermining Papua New Guineans and, and what they are able to do. And one does basically ask the question, when will be the time that Papua New Guinea can actually decolonize those thinking and asset their own identity? And I think the similar problem is faced by the judiciary in some extent that we are still out there getting those foreign judges and there are cases where foreign judges are not really familiar with the local context. And I think it raises questions about the justice of the judgment. So that's, that's, uh, that's something to look into. And I hope our PNC politicians one day uh, have a much more complete faith in their own people. Uh, the question that I'd like to point to is, is, this, is, is the appointment committee. And I think you've pointed out that the prime minister, as the head of the nation, had the power to do uh, what he decided. I think that raises, raises concern in that um, if we look at some of the, some of the examples uh, after, let's say, Sam Coyne was set and the National Security Council uh, went about and appointed um, Justice Andrew Warwick to take in charge of the Anti-Corruption Commission. Um, Warwick did nothing at all uh, and He's basically, he was not allowed to go into Papua New Guinea as well. And they are concerns that the appointment, given that uh, discretionary power to the NEC, chaired by the Prime, Prime Minister, who were in that uh, capacity, it is not so much, and I agree with you, not so much the fact that Peter O'Neill is uh, perpetually corrupt, but the perception of bias exists in such, such arrangement. When, you, when we place the appointments in the arms of political entities, the perception of bias, I mean, perception of bias and perception of corruption exist on And I think for the independence of the commission to be maintained, there has to be an independent body. And obviously, Papua New Guinea has set that precedent in the case where um, the appointments of the judges are done by, by an independent body. Um, the appointments of the original commission, for instance, done by an independent body, so why can't a similar set of arrangement be applied in this commission? I think that's, I think, I think I'll probably leave it at All right, um, you're raising a paradox here in terms of the judges and then of course the appointments of the commissioners of the ICAC. 
Um, the appointment is done by an independent appointments committee, added by the chairman, added by the prime minister. So you will still have the uh, leader of the opposition, you will still have the chief justice, you will have the uh, chief ombudsman sitting on the appointments committee for ICAC. So, so they're really independent, just like the uh, ombudsman appointments committee. Uh, for the appointment of judges, it's actually the minister for justice who is the chair, not the prime minister. And so, from where, where, where I stand, there is enough confidence in the system. Because, uh, you know, if we say that, no, it was the Prime Minister's choice, then, uh, then you're telling me that uh, Michael Dix, who is not a chief ombudsman, is actually uh, Peter Honor's man, which I refuse to accept. Because I think Michael Dix, he applied and he was selected through the process and he got a job. Uh, the, there were five judges who were confirmed last week. Uh, are we saying that those five judges are actually uh, favored by the government? Because I know those judges and I know that they're quite impartial. And so I'm saying that um, the system itself, I think it's mature enough, we just have to trust the system and make it work. But to bring in foreigners to run ICAC, it's just almost like going backwards. It's not progressive at all. So I would agree with you on that, yes. But the appointments, one of the questions that are being asked is that those appointments are supposed to be all lawyers. That's what the draft says. And we are saying, no, only one should be a lawyer. We should have other professions sitting on that commission, not only lawyers. So that's, a, that's something that we've already realized. Again, I'm thinking that the oversight committee will play the balance in terms of this bias, this, because they can easily pick it up. They have no association with the government. They could easily pick it up and raise those and create a lot of controversy if the appointment is wrong. But unfortunately, not unfortunately, the, 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 the scheme of things is that the Prime Minister is the chairman of the Appointments Committee for the Chief Ombudsman, Auditor General, um, Public Prosecutor and Public Solicitor appointed by the Minister for Justice, who chairs the Independent Commission. So there are already systems. I think in my view, we just need to make it work and build more trust into the system. We've just got a couple of minutes more, so just perhaps a couple of very quick questions. Um, we've got one here, and I think we had another one. Um, just up the back there. Yes, thanks. So I just had a quick question. Um, you started your talk mentioning that PNG was in a serious fiscal um, crisis. So I'm wondering what hurdles um, you foresee in the implementation of this and the, I guess, finding the money to support this function once the law has been passed? Well, our government has been uh, traveling the world lately asking for help. And I think um, the economists here will know where they have gone to. Um, our deputy prime minister has just returned uh, about two weeks ago, uh, traveling to the US and elsewhere asking for help. So we, we really need some help. And uh, only borrowing for the time being, will help us, but it will also increase our debts. But I think the general consensus is that we need to cut back on the expenditures. And for me, this particular crisis is good. Because like for me, as head of department, I could have cut back on some of the unnecessary expenditures. We had programs that we were, that our budget was approved last year. 
But now we can't do it, and we have to accept the fact we can't do it, and we have to cut back, cut back, and focus on the key areas. So in law reform, I'm not focusing more on these constitutional reforms. All the other small reforms will live for a while because we don't have the money. Uh, let's focus on the priorities. It also is affecting every other department. And so for me, it's good because we've been all riding on poles hope that yes, there's more money we can do this, do this. We didn't prioritize. So those are the two things that I think will help. Borrowing a little bit at the moment, but more importantly, reprioritizing and cutting back on public expenditure. Just a final, last quick question. Should be a quick one. Um, thanks very much for a really um, exciting presentation. I was just wondering, when you mentioned that the aim of the IACAC is to look into public sector um, corruption and the Ombudsman Commission looks at leaders, presumably there is a connection between those sometimes. Um, is there, are there limits to the IACAC's ability to engage in leadership issues? Or how, how does that work? Where's the line? Well, according to the draft uh, law, what it does is that it has to negotiate with the other agencies. So when it's investigating and it finds that yes, there is a corrupt conduct and it might involve a leader, then it has to talk to the Ombudsman Commission so they can find a way to prosecute the leader. Um, if it's a junior public servant or a departmental lead like me, well, they need to talk to maybe the Prime Minister's office. They say, Department of Lab is corrupt. We're going to deal with him. How do you? So there's a lot of room for consultations. That's what um, the ICAC will do. And that's why the issue was, if you had your own prosecutory powers, then you might go ahead and start to investigate anybody and anyone you want. But there are limits. So you need to work within those limits and um, work together. I think the key message from the government is that there are already existing institutions, let's strengthen them. And let's help them to become more effective. That's the message that we, we, we're getting from government. Well, I think we can keep on asking questions and go on for some time. We've unfortunately run out of time. It's been a fascinating discussion, a fascinating presentation. Uh, I'd like you to, uh, again, to join with me to thank uh, Dr. Eric Quart for a wonderful <laughs>